Well, good morning, Fellowship Greenville. My name is Jim, and I am one of the pastors here. Thank you so, so much for being here to worship Jesus with us today. And guys, way to brave Snowpocalypse 21. I'm just so proud of you. <clears throat> Both of those flakes were just out of control, so thank you guys for doing that. Auditorium 2, you guys look stunning per usual, and if you're watching online, thank you for joining us there. And if you are here on campus, on site, and you are visiting with us, extra special, glad to have you. If you have any questions about life here at Fellowship Greenville, you can stop by the Welcome Center, which is out here by Auditorium 1 in the Commons area, and we have a team there ready to help you with all of your questions about life, love, and the pursuit of happiness here at Fellowship Greenville. Also, visitors, um, <clears throat> one of the things that we want you to know if you keep hanging out with us is that on Sunday mornings, you'll usually find that we are preaching and teaching our way through an entire book of the Bible. And we wanna do this because we want to honor God's word like he gave it to us. So we don't want to go to the Bible, take it out of context, and kinda like force our own agenda. We want to go to the Bible and read it in, in its context, historically, literarily, and all, all that fun stuff, so that we can learn to submit to God's agenda. And this approach to studying the Bible has us in the New Testament book of John. You may know this, there are four biographies of Jesus in the New Testament, and John is the most unique of those four. And as John tells the Jesus story, he's consistently showing us that Jesus is the long-awaited, anointed, and appointed hero, king, and Messiah of ancient Israel that the entire Old Testament story was waiting for and pointing towards. In short, Jesus is God's agenda in a person. And John says that his entire purpose for writing this book is that we would swear allegiance to Jesus as king and then start living like he's actually Lord of the world, right? He says this at the end of his gospel in John chapter 20, verse 31. He says, these things are written, meaning the purpose of the whole book, these things are written, that you might believe that Jesus is the hero, the Messiah, the king, and that by believing, by trusting him, you would have life in his name. So John wants us to fix our eyes on Jesus and in doing that, experience the kind of life that God actually wants for us, his people. And we are at a special place in the Jesus story. If you've been here for a while, you know, he's getting ready to be arrested and go to the cross. This is the, the night where everything's about to go down. He has just shared a really intimate Passover meal with his friends in the upper room, and now they are out in the garden and Jesus is praying. And we have been eavesdropping on Jesus's prayer <clears throat> for a few weeks uh, now, and this is not just fun, like Charlie's pointed out, this is not just fun because it's like holy eavesdropping. It's fun because Jesus is praying for us. Like if you're eavesdropping, that's cool, but if somebody's talking about you, you're like, yeah, this is really fun. So that's what's happening here in John 17. Jesus even says, holy father, I am praying for all of those who would ever believe in me. And if you're trusting Jesus today, that's you. Jesus was praying for you in John 17. And I also love Charlie's refrain from the past few weeks that we should want to be an answer to Jesus's prayer in John 17. I'll never forget hearing an old Baptist preacher say, sometimes you pray for fire and you open your eyes and you see a box of matches. And I like that because that's, I like old Baptist preachers, but I also think we should probably <clears throat> think something like that and have that kind of posture as we consider John chapter 17. <clears throat> Additionally, for the past month or so, I have been sitting in the back row taking copious notes and listening to Charlie thunder out these great messages on unity. 
And simultaneously, I've been sitting in the back row and seething with jealousy that Charlie gets all the unity message because that's a pastor's dream and I don't get one. So we're going another round of it here today, kids. And not just because Jim wants to, but because there is something in John 17, an aspect of unity that we still need to tap into and explore just a little bit. So if you aren't there already, go ahead and get your Bibles, uh, paper, digital, whatever you need to do, and find your way to John chapter 17, and we'll be there in a few minutes, John chapter 17. Now, one of my favorite things that I get to do uh, in all of my life is that I get to help lead our summer internship here at church every summer, and I love, love, love working with college students and early 20s, uh, and just to make you read the Bible differently, that was the exact age of Jesus's, according to scholars, that was the age of Jesus's disciples, so when we're reading about all these guys, it's not like they have their stuff together, you know, they're 19 and they're, they're 21 and stuff, and one of the things I love most about doing our summer internship, college student stuff, is that they teach me, and here's what I mean, once you get to 30, you're, you're done, you settle, you're set in your ways, you're like, I'm in the right lane, man, I got cruise control on, don't mess with me, right? That's, that's what we do, and we keep our idols of like comfort and control really polished up nicely so we can self-justify. It's a really wonderful life that we live post 30. But here's the deal, if you're 21 and you're on the precipice of the rest of your life and you're trying to figure out how to follow Jesus and what it means to trust Jesus when it comes to friendships and dating and marriage and politics and money and all that stuff, it doesn't matter if you have an iPhone, you still know that you don't know, all right? That's the thing. And that's what I learned from them is because they have a natural posture of dependence in their whole life, whether they want to or not, and that's what I need. That's what I need. I don't need right lane cruise control. I need a posture of dependence and trust in Jesus. And so I get that. That's how they teach me every summer. But eventually, we get around to two big discussions when it comes to college students in early 20s, and that is marriage life and church life. And if you are 20 and you're looking out at the horizon of your existence and you're like, okay, what does it mean to follow Jesus? You're gonna eventually get to these two things, marriage life and church life. And you're gonna get to these two things because they're not unrelated. And here's what I mean. Both of these realities are supposed to have unity at their core. Both of these are divinely ordained institutions to show off God's love. But both marriage life and church life are ways to do the big biblical idea of covenant. That's, a, that's an Old Testament Bible word specifically where different people are bound together, specifically God and his people are bound together. And both of these contexts require huge levels of commitment and sacrifice to do them rightly. So that's, that's the affirmative, but here's how that sounds negatively. Hey there, old proverbial 20-year-old Johnny. Here's my two cents of wisdom. Here's my sage nickel of wisdom. If you ever, ever find the perfect church, don't go. If you ever find the perfect girl, don't marry her. You'll mess both of them up because number one, you got issues, you got problems, and number two, they don't exist, all right? Now, if somebody in our church moves away or if a college student goes back in a fall semester or something and they ask me to help them find a church, like scour the doctrinal statements online and all that stuff, I love doing that. And I go, absolutely, let's do it. Let's find a church that preaches Jesus directly out of the Bible. Let's find a church that sings the gospel that is open to the Holy Spirit moving, that seeks to be on mission with Jesus. Let's find a place where people confess and repent and rejoice and and delight in community. Yes, all of those, but maybe also find a place where you disagree with something. Maybe that'll help you be less terrible at marriage or friendship in five years, right? And you guys are like, Maybe, 
right? Okay. Now, here's the deal. If they're caught off guard by a statement like that, I remind them, hey, me and you, we are not objective outsiders looking in, but we bring to every relationship we'll ever have problems and issues. Doesn't matter if it's marriage, church, workplace even, friendship, no matter what. And how do I know this? Because I'm still after 30 and I'm still doing it. The, the, the point is not finding people who are so like you that you are never challenged. The, the point is not, okay, I need to get a space where my comfort is never in jeopardy. Please, God, no, 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 no. The point is finding a committed covenant family and pursuing and resting in the God-ordained unity that he wants there. Also, the family is supposed to be a small church and the church is supposed to be a big family. And so how you think about unity in one will be a commentary on how you think about unity in the other. In 2008, England's chief rabbi, Jonathan Sachs, addressed 700 bishops of the Church of England, the Anglican Church, and he gave a lecture on the topic of covenant. It was a pretty long section, it's a couple minutes, but listen to how he eventually lands on the ideas of the need for covenant unity in spaces like family and marriage and community and church and, and fellowship. Listen to how he, he gets there. And again, this is long, but it's, it's good food for thought in, in my mind. Here we go. <clears throat> Rabbi Sachs writes, I imagine meeting up with my granddaughter and taking her to see some of the sights of London. Outside parliament, I ima imagine her asking, what happens there? And I say, oh, politics. And she'd go, well, what's politics about? And I'd say, it's about the creation and distribution of power. And then we go into the city a little bit more, and she points up at the Bank of England and goes, well, what happens there? And I'd say, oh, economics happens there. And she'd say, well, what's economics about? And I'd say, it's about the creation and distribution of wealth. And then finally on our way back home, we would pass St. Paul's Cathedral and she would say, well, what happens there? And I would say, oh, worship happens there. And then she goes, well, what's worship about? What does it create and distribute? And that's a good question because our lives are often dominated by the other two institutions, politics and economics, the state and the market, the logic of power and the logic of wealth. The state is us in our collective capacity. The market is us as individuals. And the debate is, which one is more effective? The left tends to favor the state, and the right tends to favor the market, and there are endless shadings in between. But what this leaves out of the equation is a third phenomenon of the utmost importance, and I want to explain why. The state is about power, the market is about wealth, and they are two ways of getting people to do what we want. Either we force them to do it the way of power or we pay them to do it the way of wealth. But there is a third way. And to see this, let's perform a simple thought experiment. Imagine that you have total power and then you decide to share it with nine others. How much do you have left? You have a 10th of what you had when you began. Suppose you have a thousand pounds in the colonies, let's just say dollars. Suppose you have a thousand pounds and you decide to share it with nine others. How much do you have left? You have a tenth of what you had when you began. But now, now suppose you decide to share not power or wealth, but love and trust and friendship and influence or even knowledge with nine other people. How much do you have left? Do, do you have less? No, you have more, maybe even 10 times as much. Why? Because love and friendship and trust and influence are things that only exist by virtue of sharing. I call these, Rabbi Sachs, I call these covenantal goods. Goods that the more I share, the more I have. 
In the short term, at least, wealth and power are zero-sum games. If I win, you lose. If you win, I lose. Covenantal goods are non-zero-sum games, meaning if I win, you also win, and that has huge consequences. Wealth and power, economics and politics, the market and the state, these are arenas of competition Whereas covenantal goods are arenas of cooperation. That is, they are goods born out of unity. So, where do we find covenantal goods? Like friendship and trust and influence and love. They are born not in the state and not in the market, but in marriages and families and congregations and communities. I think that's thoughtful. By Rabbi Sachs. But I love this because these are the exact same spaces and places I talk to college students about, right? Marriage life, church life. That, he, he's doing the same thing. And guess, guess how Jesus talks about both of them in one sentence. Just, it was less than an hour ago, upper room time. This is what Jesus says. They will know that you're my disciples when you have love for one another. When you have love for one another, not a vague idea of love, but love with and for the other. Not love in a vacuum, no, no, no. Love for one another, covenantal love. This is what Charlie means when he says that unity is mission critical. The world needs our unity. And this is what I mean when I'm trying to encourage old 20-year-old Johnny as he's processing the future. And if we're, if we're trying to follow Jesus faithfully, we are never exempt from considering these things. And so what does John do in, in, in chapter 17? John lets us know that there is a kind of covenant unity that awaits us, that will require something out of us, and that the world needs to see. But we are way too busy, way too often piddling around with comfort and control and economics and politics and trying to find people just like us that often we lose sight of Jesus's prayer and vision for us. So how will Jesus's prayer and vision for us happen? Well, what, what is the catalyst that's going to bring it about, the match that lights the fire? And, and I'm not talking about theoretical unity, like yes, we believe these things, put that paper somewhere and we never chill or hang or, or cry or laugh. No, 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 I'm not talking about theoretical unity. I mean, how do we get to a place of functional unity where we share covenant life and covenant goods flow out of us, to use Rabbi Sachs' language? What is going to take us there? I think a question like that is what both Jesus and John want us to consider as we read John 17. And to help answer our question, our specific passage will be John 17, verses 11 through 23. John chapter 17, verses 11 through 23. Hope you guys have enjoyed marinating in this chapter for a while. Uh, if not, tough luck, because we've got some more digging to do. Um, after I read our passage, I will say my line, which is the word of God for the people of God, and then comes your line really hard and really uh, loud uh, with gratitude that God still speaks. Your line is thanks be to God. <clears throat> so here we go. What is going to make covenant unity happen? John 17, 11 through 23. Jesus prays. I am no longer in the world, but they are in the world and I am coming to you. Holy Father, keep them in your name, which you have given me, that they may be one even as we are one. <clears throat> While I was with them, I kept them in your name, which you have given to me. 
I have guarded them and not one of them has been lost except the son of destruction, that the scripture might be fulfilled. But now I am coming to you and these things I speak in the world that they may have my joy fulfilled in themselves. I have given them your word and the world has hated them because they are not of the world, just as I am not of the world. I do not ask that you take them out of the world, but that you keep them from the evil one. They are not of the world, just as I am not of the world. Sanctify them in the truth. Your word is truth. As you sent me into the world, so I have sent them into the world. And for their sake, I consecrate myself that they may be sanctified in truth. I don't ask for these only, but also for all of those who will ever believe in me through their word, that they may all be one, just as you, Father, are in me and I in you, that they may be in us so that the world may believe that you have sent me. The glory that you have given me, I have given to them that they may be one, even as we are one. I in them and you in me, that they may become perfectly one so that the world may know that you sent me and loved them even as you loved me. This is the word of God for the people of God. Amen. Now, before we look at what our passage affirms about how unity works, we need to talk about how it doesn't. So when Jesus is praying for our unity, he's not talking about the following, and if you're taking notes, here are three things that unity isn't. Number one, and Charlie mentioned this, biblical unity isn't uniformity. Biblical unity isn't uniformity. Uniformity means the same kind of the same kind. It's no fun, it's redundant. There is no nuance or distinction in uniformity. And if unity means uniformity, then we'd all be Christian robots, and that is no fun, and that's not how God set it up. God paints with the widest possible palette. He creates, he craves, he delights in diversity. So if your experience of Christian unity is just these small, tiny bubbles where everybody looks like you, dresses like you, talks like you, thinks like you, eats the places where you eat and all that, everything's the same. First of all, you're no fun. You should ecclesiologically get out more. And secondly, I don't think that honors the sweep of scripture and I don't think it honors our passage in its context. And here's what I mean. Look at the end of verse 11. Verse 11. <coughs> that they may be one even as we are one. So Jesus shares a unity with his holy father. That's our standard for unity. They are both divine. But if we step a little bit back from John 17, the point of this section in the gospel of John is that both the father and the son go about their equal unity distinctly and separately. Jesus is going to the cross and the father is not. Same in essence, distinct in action. Both fully divine, but functionally doing their divinity in different ways. If you think this is an abstract principle, so sorry you're wrong. If you go to 1 Corinthians, you will see that Paul also uses this principle when he talks about spiritual gifts. He says in 1 Corinthians 12, 7, every single believer is given, that's me and you, a, a, given a spiritual gift for the common good to build one another up in unity. And he says every single spiritual gift has the exact same aim. And then the gifts he lists are wildly different. Some of them I'm like, whoa. And some of them I'm like, yeah, I can hang with that. Wildly different. So here's the deal. Again, unity in goal and purpose and essence, but not uniformity in function and action. 
There isn't flat uniformity within God, within the Trinity, so that shouldn't be our goal either. Also, next, four followers of Jesus. Biblical unity (coughs) isn't political unity. Man, you and Charlie just keep going back to this. Of course we do. We, it's, it's absolute guarantee that you'll pay attention if we do. So this is just, this is just what we have to do, okay? Now here's the deal. <clears throat> when I say biblical unity isn't political unity, hear me very clearly. I am not talking about biblical ideas like the sanctity of life in all things, especially when it comes to things like racism and the life of the unborn. If you are a Christian and you debase or take a life because it's easier for you, that is not a political issue, that is a biblical issue. Now, what I'm talking about, biblical unity isn't political unity, is what Rabbi Sachs was getting at, that there are endless possibilities for how the state relates to the market and we could, all the shadings in between and we could conjure up all these different ways in which the two relate. What I'm saying is, you pick your way, that's fine. Pick whatever way. What I'm saying is the way that you pick is not the foundation on which Christian unity in Jesus Christ is built. That's all I'm saying. That's exactly what I'm getting at. Or to get behind John's gospel to the culture of the first century, politics offered a parody of what Jesus truly offers to us. In the first century, Caesar was called Lord and Savior. And we know that Jesus alone is the true Lord and Savior, or to put it in terms that you might be more or less comfortable with, Jesus is the only true commander in chief of every tribe, tongue, nation, and language, and he's got no term limits, okay? So Caesar, guess what? He called for loyalty and allegiance, and that is the exact same word in the New Testament as faith or believe. And we've already said what John says. I write these things that you would believe, that you would swear allegiance to Jesus for your whole life. And by doing that, you would have the life that God wants for you. Here's my simple point. And I don't think a lot of us believe this. The Bible's portrait is that Christians will always be politically homeless in this world. And our ultimate allegiance is to Jesus above, in, around, over, and through everything else. So listen, yes, go do earthly politics with humility and with grace. Do them, go get them, but do them as an extension of your love for Jesus and not a replacement of it. And all the while know that Jesus alone can provide the unity that we need and that we should want. Only Jesus can do that. That's what I mean by political, excuse me, biblical unity isn't political unity. Number three, and this is the one that I struggle with right here. Biblical unity isn't total theological agreement, all right? This is the one that's, that's tough for me. But it's also fragile because we can do an entire sermon series on this. And because, watch this, uh, our unity is built on central theological truths about Jesus and the gospel, and we're gonna get to that. But here's the deal doesn't mean we have to agree on every detail and fine point of every doctrine before we can have unity. And here's, here's a good litmus test to this. How closely related is a doctrine or an idea to the message and story and person and work of Jesus? The closer it is to Jesus, then that's how much you should care about it and be serious about it. <clears throat> Let me give you an example. Paul's, or the Bible says that God created everything out of nothing. That's pretty, that's pretty important. And it's actually close to the Jesus story. And you're like, oh yeah, hey, 2 Corinthians, you know what Paul says? When God created everything out of nothing, in the same way, he says to your heart, let there be light. So the salvation in Jesus is like God creating out of nothing. <clears throat> now watch this, ho, 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 watch. But whether or not he did so in seven literal 24-hour days, hey, fun discussion, all right? I'm not landing the plane anywhere on that right now. But that he did out of nothing matters. Whether or not seven literal 24-hour days, <clears throat> 
you know, loosen up a little bit. Take a deep breath. Okay, here's another example. That Jesus is going to physically come back and reign on this planet in the new creation. Absolutely important and central to the Jesus story. It's Jesus' reign we're talking about. Now, you getting out all of your tables and charts and calendars and being like, wait, 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 here's when he's gonna happen. I've been watching the news and reading Revelation out of context, so it's gonna be right here. And Jesus actually said that it's not going to be there, so you're wrong. Listen, the timing of that, I don't care, all right? Like, we can have the conversation. I'm not sweating anything. You see what I'm saying? You, you have to see how closely an idea relates to the message of Jesus himself. And we could go on and on with examples about all three of these things, but for now, these three pictures of what unity isn't are supposed to whet our appetite and help us grasp more fully what unity is and how it works. So let's get on with the thing, what's going to make covenant unity happen, and to start positively answering our question, look down at John 17, verse 17, sanctify them in truth, your word is truth. Now, we're gonna do a little class participation. Auditorium two, you two, I've got spies over there. I just need you to say the second word in the sentence. Say the word them, here it is. Who does Jesus want to be sanctified? Okay, that was two of you, and Hawkins isn't even in here. Okay, that was terrible, all right. Who does Jesus want to be sanctified? Okay, good. Oh, wow, that was really good. So look, them is a plural and not a singular, which means your personal holiness and sanctification matters, but that's not what this verse is primarily talking about. Your personal sanctification and holiness is a byproduct of what Jesus is praying for. He's praying for corporate holiness, or to use Rabbi Sachs' word, cooperative holiness, covenant sanctification. Now, This little picture is so easy and simple, but it helps me. The word sanctify here in the middle of this chapter is a word about holiness and set-apartness. So watch this. If I take this sheet of paper and I tear off a small end of this sheet of paper, the word holy talks about how this piece relates to this piece of paper. This piece over here is separate and it's other. But here's the deal in John 17, 17. The torn off piece is a them and not a me. All of us are on this sheet of paper right here. So, so what we're talking about is unity is, is the word for how the torn off piece of paper relates to itself. Holiness is a word about how it relates to the other thing. So here's what I'm getting at. Unity is corporate holiness. If you want to be sanctified, if you want to grow in your faith, if you want to be like Jesus, if you want to get holy, I'm all for it. Let's do it but you should be pursuing unity with other brothers and sisters in Christ as a means to that end. If you want your faith to soar, you should fight for unity. I promise you right now, friends, pay attention because some of you introverts are like, wait a second, Jesus does not want you to be holy in a vacuum. That is not holiness at all. That is isolation. Jesus wants for us shared holiness. Sanctify them in truth. And unity is corporate holiness. Now watch. Look down at verse 11 again. We just looked at it. Look at verse 11, the end of verse 11. Father, may they be one, even as we are one. I would highlight that phrase, even as. It's used a bunch in this passage, and it's massively theological. Now go down to verse 22. Also in verse 22, he prays the same. May they be one even as we are one. And then in between these two statements that are the exact same, look in verse 19, look. And I think this is the key that unlocks that. Jesus says, I 
consecrate. I set myself apart, the same word as sanctify in verse 17. I set myself apart that they will be set apart in truth or by truth. And that means, watch, that the mechanism that leads to corporate set-apartness, the, the, the catalyst that will bring about unity is truth. God's catalyst to bring about the unity is truth. God made truth to serve the oneness and harmony and togetherness of his people. Jesus is praying that that would be our experience, that we would be unified by truth and we would love it and we would smile about it and be happy about it, that the truth would bind us together. So this is utterly vital to understanding Jesus' prayer and vision for us. Now, some of you might go, okay, I see that there, Jim. I, I, I get that. But, but here's what I want to tell you. This is actually kind of uh, scary and scandalous. And here's how. In Jesus' mind, Truth is the match that should light the fire of covenant unity. So in Jesus' mind, it's a great thing. The problem is we are prone to think the exact opposite. In our lives, usually we think of truth not as unifying, but as dividing. Here's the deal. In most of our culture, if you believe in one truth claim, you attach a bunch of other baggage and stuff to that, and then anybody who doesn't roll with your entire, entire bundle of truth claims, you have to distance yourself from them, and then and if they get too close, you beat them up with it, right? That's how our culture wants us to think about truth and truth claims. <clears throat> Let me give you a simple example. I ordered this fun little sticker patch uh, in the mail and I thought it was awesome and it just says, be young, have fun, smash racism. Which is, I'm like, hey, that's cool. What, two bucks, click, right? But here's the deal. Without me asking, they did not get my permission. They also sent me some free police-hating literature and that broke my heart because I have great friends who protect and serve and I thank God for them. We have incredible people here who are serving us every Sunday morning and Matt Broad still owes me a ride along, okay? He said like six months ago, you could give me a ride along and he still hasn't done that. But look, my point is that people, people think truth is about competition and division. <clears throat> and I got a million examples, but I hear things like this all the time when I hear people talk about other people, you ready? Oh, you think capitalism is the way to go. You must not care about poor people. Oh, you voted for a Democrat. You must not care about working hard and traditional family values. Oh, you think abortion is wrong. You must not care about the life and health of the mother. Oh, you're a Calvinist. You must not care about missions or evangelism or the other team. Oh, you're a Wesleyan Arminian person. You must think that we're saved by works and not by grace. Oh, oh, I get it. You homeschool because you're scared to send your kids to public school. <clears throat> or you, you send your kids to public school and you don't care whether or not they're indoctrinated, right? right? Some of you guys are like, that's too close to home. Don't, <clears throat> right? And look, I've got a thousand more I could do, okay? My, my point right now is this. So much of the cultural air that we breathe wants us to think that truth is based on divisive, angry, hating, competing ideas and it's not unifying and it can't be. And guess what? That's what our experience usually is. But brother and sister in Jesus, we are not called to a pop cultural definition of truth. We are not. We're not called to read the Bible through the lens of our own experience. Rather, we're called to read our experience through the lens of God's word. So the question is, what does our passage mean when it talks about truth? That's the question. 
Well, in John's gospel account, truth is always about Jesus and what he has come to do. In chapter one, he is full of grace and truth. In chapter eight, Jesus says, you abide in my word and you'll know the truth and the truth will set you free. And less than an hour ago in John 14, Jesus said, I am the way and the truth and the life. Nobody comes to the Father but by me. <clears throat> so the thing, the single thing the universe, uh, that unifies is not a thing but a person, and it is Jesus. And we have to get this because our, our culture wants us to believe something else. Truth is a person to relate to, Jesus himself, and not primarily an abstract principle to believe in. Again, truth is a person. The embodiment of truth is Jesus Christ himself, and not primarily a free-floating idea. Truth, truth is not a socially contingent construct. Jesus alone is the, is the change agent for our unity. And what we're talking about here is Christians being unified with other Christians. And please, 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 we have to get this. This is not about our level of comfort. It is so that other people will know and trust and obey and follow and serve Jesus. Truth is not a club to beat people up with. Truth is a constant and daily person who represents an invitation into grace and love and community and relationship with God. Now look at verse 17. Look, <coughs> sanctify them in truth, your word it's truth. Word here does not mean Bible. It means message, the message. So as John writes about truth, truth is two things. One, the person and the work of Jesus. Two, people talking about the, per the person and the work of Jesus. And guess what the entire New Testament calls that? The gospel. Now look at verse 19. Verse 19. Jesus says that he's about to consecrate himself. That means it's the same word as sanctify. He's about to set himself apart for their corporate holiness. Jesus is about to be, remember holiness means cut above the rest. Jesus is about to be cut off for our unity. And this is about the cross of Jesus. And this means that the gospel message of Jesus Christ crucified is the ultimate thing that brings us unity. It's the match and the fire. The truth of the gospel is the only thing that can bind us together in covenant oneness and harmony and spill out with covenant goods and love. It's the only thing that can be a warm welcome of grace and love to the watching world. Look, that's verse 23. That's verse 23. So that the world might know. The world needs our unity. They need it, and they need our unity around the cross of Christ. The world will not know the self-giving love of the gospel when Christians fight about politics and economics more than they enjoy and forgive one another. The world will not know the self-giving love of the gospel when Christians are more known for building walls than building bridges. The world will not know the self-giving love of the gospel when Christians split hairs over peripheral theological points instead of standing in awe of the fact that he loves you and you don't deserve it. And he went to, to death, he loves you. The world, the world needs our beholding the truth of Jesus. And here's the deal. The fact that truth is the agent of unity is not incidental or accidental. John has been writing in terms of truth and lies for 17 chapters. And if you wanna have fun with some Bible verses, just flip them and their meaning will hit a little bit more intensely. Verse 17, here's the reverse of verse 17. They are not sanctified in lies, but they tried to be. Their words are lies. 
That means that you and I, on our own, we believe lies, we tell lies, we live in lies, and on our own, we are not the standard for what is true, good, and beautiful in the world. Only Jesus is. So on our own, guess what we do? We end up deceived and deceiving, and we have to have the truth of the gospel to humble us and give us joy and give us hope and give us peace and give us unity with each other, a kind of unity that I actually think, I'm dumb enough to think, will actually change the world and lies will not get us there. Only the truth of Jesus who was cut off so that we could be brought in. Now, I believe that with all of my heart. But here's the deal. If this doesn't change how we live as God's people, then we've failed. Theoretical unity without practical unity is just another lie. So what does it look like to live in a world of truth divides when we believe that the truth of Jesus unifies? Now, don't forget one of the reasons I love hanging out with college students is because I need to hear myself say out loud, hey, enjoying covenant unity requires commitment and sacrifice like marriage and and church and all that. I I need that reminder. And then I need to be reminded that it's first and foremost, not my sacrifice. John 17, 19, the sacrifice in view is Jesus's sacrifice that makes us a part of God's people. That's the truth on which the unity is built. So based on his committed love, contingent on his self-giving love, we should now find creative and patient ways to do the exact same, or to put it redundantly, because we all struggle with it. Our response to the unifying truth of Jesus' sacrificial love is meant to be, shocker, hold your breath, sacrificial love. All right? that's, That's the deal. That's how we're supposed to live in covenant harmony with each other. That's the unity that the world needs to see so that they can then see the grace and truth of Jesus. We, we need to behold his laying down his life for us and then we need to seek to do the exact same for other people. But I also love, uh, love telling like a metaphorical college Johnny, hey, if you find the perfect girl, find the perfect church, don't go for it. You'll mess both of them up. <clears throat> but here's, here's our version of that. Here's how this translates and, and lands for us. Are you willing to sacrifice being right and feeling right for the sake of unity? I didn't ask if you were right. I asked about your willingness. But Jim, I'm asking about your willingness. Do you have to win every single argument in your marriage? Do you have to? You don't know who I live with, Thompson. I didn't ask who you were married to. That's your fault, okay? Look. I'm asking about your willingness. Do you have to make your spouse and your friends feel like the buck stops with you and whatever conversation is happening? Do you have to make people see it your way in small group, in political conversations with believers, or in theological conversations? Are are you so committed to your marriage, to your church, to godly friendships? Are you so committed that you are willing to put aside defensiveness for the sake of unity? I hope so. And you guys are like my, this is like a huge uh, Roman Catholic confession booth and y'all are my priest. I'm terrible at this. Absolutely horrible. I can be so hard-hearted and self-justifying and a terrible listener and I've done it to you, to some of you individually. I know I have. And in my brain I go, I'm Bible guy. They should care what I think, right? I literally get paid to stand up there and do this, okay? 
and that's so hard-hearted of me, and it's supreme arrogance. This is the kind of arrogance that Jesus just ripped the Pharisees for. And so I pray that Jesus would forgive me when, I, when that's too easy for me. I hate the thought that I conflate my preference with the truth of the gospel. But here we have to take it one step further. Jesus actually had the authority to tell everybody, hey, hey, guys, 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 shut up. I'm gonna tell you what's right. He actually had that authority. You and I don't have that green light. And here's the deal. What did he do? Some of you are like, well, he spoke truth to people. Yeah, in parables, they didn't get it, all right? And everything he said was so that we could understand what he did better, what he did on the cross. He had the right to do it and he laid down his life. What I'm saying is we are sinful and we consume ourselves by trying to make people just like us and we are rarely willing to sacrifice anything to make it happen, but not Jesus. Jesus was sinless and the entire goal of our existence is that we will be just like him and he sacrificed everything to make it happen, everything. And so for truth to unify us and for the world to see God's love in our unity, sacrifice must happen and it did at the cross. And so guess what? All of our attention should be there so that we can then do the self-giving love of the gospel in this church, in your marriage, and in all of our friendships around the world. That's what we're called to do. Now here's my challenge for you, and it'll take time because unity is a marathon, not a sprint. Some of you guys are gonna hate this. I don't like, totally enjoy it. (laughs) Find people that are more and less conservative than you politically. Find people that are more and less conservative than you theologically. And ask them to share about how they ended up with their convictions with an open Bible in front of you. And don't try to win the argument. Only ask open-ended, even-toned questions. And then, this is mind-blowing, say, hey, how's Jesus working in your life? How's it hard for you to trust him right now? You bow your head and you pray for them right there out loud without defending your point of view and you don't do it on Facebook, (laughs) right? It's, It's not, I mean, that hard. I mean, it's impossible, but it's also so easy. And here's, here's the thing. You think that's about feeling warm fuzzies. The world needs to see that. They're gonna know that we're his disciples by our love for one another. The truth of Jesus as God in the flesh who has come to earth and lived a perfect life and died on a sinner's cross and he drained death of its power by his resurrection and he is returning as unimpeachable king. This is the truth that makes the fire of unity burn brightly. And so now with all of our nuanced opinions and our wide ranging experiences, we need to come and circle around the fire together. Unity, not uniformity. Covenant relationship, not covenant robots. And we need to gather around this gospel fire to warm ourselves by its heat and to eat and laugh and share and cry with each other and to see things more clearly by its light. Fellowship Greenville, this is a really good fire. This fire is 
the gospel of Jesus who gave himself for us that we could be a part of his family. And part and parcel central to that is that we would be one just as he and his father are one. And I hope that that excites you. Hope maybe it makes you a little nervous, but I also hope that it draws out of you a deep and humble and happy faith in the person and work of Jesus. So father, Jesus was cut apart, set apart so that we will be brought in and thank you for that. To close today, Matt and Johnny sent me a video on Wednesday and they said, hey man, we're thinking about playing this before your message, what do you think? And I said, please don't play that before my message. It's my entire sermon in two minutes. (laughs) And so, I apologize that you had to do 42 uh, instead of just two, but this is what I'd love for you to do. Put your Bibles under your chairs and put your coffee down and pens and whatever and your devices and turn your attentions to the screen and let's, let's have a prayerful posture and think well about God's word and what we just talked about and have a prayerful posture to, to the Lord making us one. Turn your attentions to the screens.